Today's reading is from Matthew, chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's great to be here with you, preparing for Christmas. It's coming, you know. Uh, many of you have plans. Uh, we have plans ourselves. We're going to visit with Emery's father, who's uh, not doing well. Pray for him and for us as we, as we uh, visit with him over the holidays. Um, we have concluded a series on prayer. This will be the last in the series on prayer that we're doing. And we wanted, we were getting so much out of praying together and learning about prayer together that we are taking the theme of prayer right through Advent. And we're looking at um, the, basic, the basic thing is this, that we, the basic message of prayer that we got or our definition of prayer that we got was this, that prayer is God revealing himself to us and then us responding back to him through what he has revealed. Prayer is God revealing himself to us and then us responding back to him through God, what God has revealed. And here in this passage, one of the interesting things about what Jesus does is he looks at the advent. He looks back at the promise of God about his coming And he reveals something to us that's very different about God than we might expect or than many of us have grown up believing. It's very different. And that affects the way that we'll pray this Advent. Let's put it another way. Many of you uh, are undergoing the project of buying houses that need rebuilt, that need work from the inside out. And you need a new framework inside. Right? We, um, our first house, when we were in Nashville for a couple of years, and we had a, a starter home, and it needed lots and lots of work. And there was an upstairs, a, a, an upstairs area that was divided terribly by the wrong framework. It was really just poorly done, and it was, it was sort of done into three, two and a half rooms and a couple of slanted closets, and it, it was just awfully done. And so to redo that room, we had to go in and tear down the drywall and tear down everything that was covering the bad framework and pull the framework out. And we had to rebuild a new framework. And it ended up being a beautiful room. It was a through, sort of a, had a through thing going on. And there was a staircase that was open. And it had a bookcase that we built around it. So I could go up and I could study there. And it was, it was beautiful. Framework means something. It makes a difference. Framing, uh, framing the gospel. Framing Advent. Framing who Jesus is. And understanding of that is what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about our framework for coming to him and understanding. And we're going to learn a couple of things about that in this passage. We're going to look at um, the fact that Jesus challenges our framework for who he is. He challenges our framework for who he is. And he also rebuilds our framework for who he is. And that's what he's doing here. So let's just spend a few minutes and look at these things together. First, Jesus challenges our framework for who he is. Look at verse 41. Jesus asks them a question. You've got to be careful when Jesus turns and asks you a question 
there's some uh, there's some heavy things going on. I train with a uh, kung fu master who's very very competent, the most competent kung fu instructor that I've ever encountered. And when he stops training and asks a question, you're on guard because you know that he's coming after you to change the framework that you're using to approach what he's teaching. You see, and so Jesus does that here. Uh, what happens? What's happening? What's happening when Jesus asks this question? And what's going on around him? We have to understand in verse 34, before what's printed here, the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had silenced their counterparts. There was another sort of religious leader, group of religious leaders, that were uh, believed some different things than they did. They were both of the same camp. They were both Jews, groups of Jews. But the Sadducees and the Pharisees were different in the way that they interpreted Judaism. And Jesus had silenced the Sadducees with the same kind of thing that he's doing here. And so the Pharisees sort of rolled up their sleeves and said, let us use our Pharisaical Kung Fu on Jesus and let's go see what he does with us. And so they come. And it's verse 35 says to test him. You can go back to verse 15 of the same chapter and says that the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. All right? So that's why they're there. That's why they're there, and that's why uh, um, Jesus asked them a question. Now, one of the things to know about this scene is that the Pharisees took the mainline expectation in Judaism at the time for who the Messiah would be. Who the Messiah would be. And they were looking, you can see, they're actually, one of the interesting things is a side note, but as you study passages like this, there's extra biblical literature, literature outside of the Bible that was written around this time. The Pharisees have some literature. There's a Psalm of Solomon, for example, written by them. And so it shows their expectations for the Messiah. And they were looking for a David, one of David's line to arise and gather people in revolt and throw off the Roman yoke and restore independence in theocracy. Theocracy. God's rule. Uh, you know, democracy for the people, of the people, by the people, for the people, you know, uh, theocracy of God, by God, for God. So the, the rule of Israel in their capital was originally that. It was no longer that in this, and they're longing for it. They're under oppression as a people, right? They're having to uh, undergo foreign rule in a land that was originally promised to them. And they're having to struggle spiritually too, because all of this happened because of their brokenness, their sinfulness, their rebellion against God. God promised them that that would happen. And so they're, they're feeling under judgment. They're feeling alienated from God to some extent. And yet they have all of the promises of God that they cling to. And they've looked at that. And their framework for looking at those promises is to look at that and say, ah, God must mean a political deliverer. One who's going to deliver us from the bondage of Roman rule. He's going to restore the glory of the golden days. They were looking for a descendant of David's line to arise And gather the people in revolt to throw off the Roman yoke and restore independence and theocracy. There were other expectations in Israel in those days by the Jewish people, for sure. But among them, this, was, this hope was the most common for the Messiah. Okay? The Pharisees reply to Jesus' question, it's an unexceptional reply for the day. It's really unexceptional. They, when they answered the son of David, verse 42... They were showing that their view of the Messiah was primarily as a political deliverer, though they didn't entirely neglect the spiritual aspect of it, of their hope. 
The 17th Psalm of Solomon shows this. Again, a Pharisaical psalm, extra-biblical literature. So at the end of this chapter, this chapter here, there's a bunch of controversies going on in this chapter. And at the very end, the would-be judges are judged when Jesus turns and asks his questions. He reworks their framework. Jesus asks the combined opposition, the Sadducees are there too, the religious leaders are there, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who would represent Israel and religious leadership of the day, they're there. And Jesus asks the combined opposition a question that summarizes both his claims about who he is and their discomfort about that, their discomfort. He knows that he's aiming right at their framework for the way that they framed who he is and what he does. His challenge to their framework was powerful. The result of the challenge is seen in verse 46. What does it say? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The master's spoken. He's spoken through his question. All right? Jesus doesn't allow our framework about who he is to go unchallenged. Think about it this way. An author has the right to interpret his own words, right? There's a difference between being on the stage as an actor and interpreting the play from within the play and from within a character in the play and being the author of the play who has the final word about the, what the play means. Several summers ago, my wife and I and, and our children took a shared vacation with a very good friend who's a playwright. And uh, we went to, um, to San, uh, Santa Monica and we had a shared house. And we were there so that he could have his play put on for this festival that was going on. And so although we got to eat together and have fun together in the evening, the days were him spent in rehearsals watching the actors interpret his words wrongly. And it was, it's very frustrating. If you ever know any playwrights and authors, they deal with this all the time. And there are special uh, people within drama called dramaturgs who, who uh, help the actors come along and help guide them according to... It's much like a conductor with a symphony, right? But he had the privilege of sitting in. Not many uh, playwrights get the privilege of doing this. He had the privilege of sitting in every rehearsal. And he would get such arguments from the actors saying, no, well, I really like to envision it this way. I'd like to play it that way. And he said, would you stop liking to do this or that and listen to my words? This is what it means. Not that. You can't do it that way because it guts the meaning of it. You're missing it. You're missing the point. The framework for you coming to this is wrong. I'm the author. I know. I wrote it. Jesus is doing that here. The author has the right to interpret his own words. So he looks back at the Psalms and he quotes them. And he uses the Pharisees' allegiance to the Scripture and to the importance that they have with interpreting the Scripture. And he uses all of that, and he takes it, and he shows them, even within your own interpretation of Scripture, you would hold both to be true. You would hold both of these facts to be true. We'll get to that in a minute. And yet you're missing it. Let the author tell you what it's supposed to mean. So Jesus was warning his people against judging his mission in traditional terms. And far from being enthroned in Jerusalem as a king like David, he would soon be rejected. He would soon be rejected by his people. But even then on the cross, he would be recognized at last, not as the son of David. That title doesn't occur again in the gospel. But as the son of God. And that's the title that Matthew leaves him with. What does this mean for us, this advent? as we come with our frameworks to who Jesus is, 
Have you given Jesus the right to look at your framework and tell you where it's wrong about him? To interpret your framework? To interpret it for you? Have you come to his words about himself? Have you come to his presence in your life, shaping you rather than you shaping him? One of the rights that he claims in Advent, when he looks back at this passage and says, you want to know what my birth means? You want to know what my coming means? It means that I have the right over all frameworks. I'm the author. And I direct what's going on, and I interpret what's going on. Can you accept that? We, we, we have trouble with frameworks because we look at a claim like, well, Jesus is saying this in the Bible, and how do you know the Bible is true? And doesn't the Bible, well, doesn't the idea that the Bible is true because Jesus is saying is it true, which is basically the Bible is true because the Bible is true, isn't that circular reasoning? Jesus' point is you can't escape it. You can't escape circular reasoning. If you're a scientist and you use empiricism as your framework to judge all truth, what's your basis for judging truth? Empiricism, circular reasoning. If you studied existential philosophy, or you're a feeler and an artist, and you go by the inside and what your gut tells you, what's your framework for deciding what's right? What your gut tells you, or some internal criteria. You can't escape circularity. Jesus says here that only someone from outside of your framework can, redef- can define it properly can solve your problems. Some of you have been in mathematics. You remember Gertel's theory? The set cannot be proven with inside itself. It has to be proven from outside of itself. It's the same thing here. So Jesus challenges our framework for who he is. But also, Jesus rebuilds our framework for who he is. He rebuilds it. He said to them, how is it then that David, in this spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? How is he his son? Friends, Matthew's Gospel, this is a letter to the early church, the early Christians, uh, that was written so that people would know who Jesus is. And it was written particularly to the Jewish community out of which Jesus came, out of which the disciples came, Right? It was written from that community. And Matthew's gospel was written for Jews who would have recognized Joseph's Davidic ancestry. Jesus' father, Mary and Joseph, would have recognized Joseph's Davidic ancestry. Jesus was known in Israel as Joseph's child. He was known as that. And therefore, descendant of David. And in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's, Matthew wants to get that across. But it's not less than that. It's more than that. In Matthew's gospel, the Messiah's twofold relationship to his people, twofold relationship to his people is brought out. What is that? Well, on the one hand, the Messiah is the flesh and blood of Mary and therefore one of God's people. The Messiah is the flesh and blood of Mary and therefore one of God's people. He fulfills the Davidic line. On the other hand, the Messiah is without human ancestry. For he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We'll confess those kinds of things as we come to the Lord's table. The Lord's table. The Messiah is the Holy One. A stranger to sin. This passage focuses on the Messiah being without human ancestry as much as the the gospel, the whole letter of Matthew, focuses on him being the son of David. Jesus knew full well that the Messiah was to come from David's family line. 
The prophecies of the Old Testament are explicit on that point. Matthew's gospel is full of that point. But Jesus knew, too, that the Messiah was so much more than the sort of deliverer that the Jews were hoping for. The Messiah was so much more. Jesus wanted to make them examine their easy assumptions and inherited prejudices. Where are your easy assumptions and inherited prejudices about who Jesus is? Jesus would address you in those, just as he did them. Jesus wanted to make them examine them. He wanted to make them think at a time when their minds were almost closed, a time when they believed that they knew what to make of Jesus and his claims, but were far from knowing. So Jesus pressed the Pharisees with the question, If the Messiah is no more than David's descendants, how do they explain Psalm 110, verse 1s, which they admit themselves to be both Davidic and Messianic? In other words, the Messiah would be both of the family of David, of the family line of David, but also a source from outside, God breaking in in some way. In Psalm 110, Yahweh, God Almighty, addresses the descendant of David as Lord and offers him a share of his throne until all opposition to his rule is banished. How could this merely be David's son, a mere human being? If David calls him Lord, in what sense can it be his son? In what sense? The Messiah is David's son, but he's also David's Lord. That doesn't fit the Pharisees' notion of merely an earthly and political Messiah. Jesus is trying to open their eyes to the futility of hope which doesn't rise beyond the human level, doesn't come in and break in from outside. Son of David is not an adequate title for Jesus in and of itself. He's the Son of God whom Matthew knows to be exalted at the right hand of God, where he shares God's reign over the world. No smaller conception of who Jesus is is big enough to embrace one who is both David's son and David's Lord. Listen to me. What did the Pharisees believe? They believed that the revolution that they needed could be fought in their own strength and led by one from among their number. They believed that the revolution that they needed could be fought in their own strength and led by one from among their number. But the reality was that the revolution they sought and the political deliverer they imagined were too small too small. They needed much more revolution than they were seeking and much more of a deliverance than they would admit. They needed a revolution that would be fought in the strength of the Lord, led by the Lord himself, overcoming not just political enemies on their behalf, but the cosmic enemies of sin and death as well. But the revolution they were seeking was not the revolution they were needing. Jesus not only challenges the demands Uh, challenges, but demands to rebuild the entire framework for understanding who he is. They needed, and we needed, a revolution that would be fought in the strength of the Lord, led by the Lord himself. Look, think of it this way. You know, one of the things that happened around Christmas time is the second Hobbit movie has come out. And so we're, we're preparing to go see that. But it also gets me thinking about Lewis and Tolkien and uh, those friendships. Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, but uh, Lewis was a friend. And they got together regularly to talk about life and faith in their art and what it meant to write out of that and live out of that and work out of that. And one of the things that Lewis said is that, you know, people will generally not listen to theology, People will not take time to read it and understand it. It's dense. 
It's hard to follow arguments sometimes. It can be beautiful, and it is very necessary, but people will rarely come to it. But, Lewis said, people would come to, you can smuggle any amount of theology into a good story, and people come to a good story. And so when he tells the story of Aslan and Edmund, and there's no way for Edmund to save himself from the curse of the witch and the, and the, the, way she, the hold she has on him. There's no way for him to solve that. He's trapped. He's not going to escape. And so Lewis portrays Aslan, the lion, the great lion, the winner of all battles, as going to the great table himself and himself being stabbed by the witch taking the curse so that Edmund could be freed, so that he could be transformed. He himself took his place. Salvation for Edmund came outside of himself, from something greater than himself. And you see this in all of the great stories. Dave uh, talked about the way that we come to worship as being like Lord of the Rings or uh, 300, and that that's how the Lord approaches us, but we can come to worship in that way and that kind of victory as well. Those stories of great battles, they all have this element in them. Thinking about the, uh, the last battle at the Black Gates in the Lord of the Rings, where Aragorn and his party are really being beaten down, and they're losing hope, and it looks like all is going to fail, and then something happens. The power of the ring is broken. The enemies are swallowed up. And just as in Jesus' promises, every valley will be exalted and every mountain be made low, you see this band who was beaten with death surrounding them, standing on the only ground that's remaining, when all of the other grounds swallowed up the enemies of goodness and darkness. But that came not from their own battle prowess. It came not from their own strength. The victory came from something outside of themselves. They benefited. And so we too benefit from the one who was outside of creation, who broke into creation, who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. And he rose again from the dead. And he sent his spirit to testify with us now that this advent is the true framework. This advent is the reshaping of all frameworks. Where's your framework in that? for understanding who Jesus is. Jesus is our revolution in the strength of the Lord. He leads the revolution as the Lord himself. You know, there's a great place in the New Testament where they talk about how the angels long to look into the gospel. You know, there's, the angels are represented as fiercest of beings defending the Lord's kingdom and as messengers often. But they are powerful beings, and they battle for the Lord, and they will battle with the Lord on the last day. And here we have Advent, and we have the Son of David and the Son of God breaking into creation, taking humanity upon himself, being born as a baby. And you have the mighty ones of God in all of their array, in all of their power, in all of their armor held back because they can't follow their king where he's going. Only their king can do it. And only your king has. He's broken in. And he's come for you. And he rules through servanthood. And that is the greatest example of leadership that we can have. What is the advent about? The mighty one took your place. He knows what it means to be weak. He knows what it means to be lonely. He knows what it means to be afflicted. 
He knows what everything means. He came in to experience it perfectly. You think you're sorry? You think you're mournful? You think you're alone and sad and depressed? Jesus knew those emotions with the perfection of the Son of God as the Son of Man, and he did that for you. The angels longed to look into the gospel. They couldn't follow him, their king, because only he could go there and lead by serving. So Jesus challenges our framework for who he is, and he seeks to rebuild our framework for who he is entirely. Just redo it entirely. What is your framework for who Jesus is this Advent? What is your framework? Have you let Jesus himself entirely rebuild and shape and retool and re-everything your framework? Would you do that this Advent? Would you do that as you do your last-minute shopping as you get frustrated at the checkout lines and the, the length of line, as you get frustrated because your Amazon order didn't come and UPS is late, or as you get frustrated, would you, man, would you remember the one who came into frustration for your sake? He loves you. And that's what Christmas is for and about. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful. We need you. We depend upon you. We want to know you better through your word. Would you teach us about our own frameworks and how they need remade and how you alone reserve the right to interpret them? Father, give us your presence. Give us your grace and your peace and the power of your transformation through relationship with you and your spirit through what Jesus has done. Let us not succumb to a terminal casualness this Christmas, but let us be remade by the living God. It's in